All right. Good morning, church. If you are grabbing coffee and tea and some snacks, please feel free to continue to do so. When you have those, come grab a seat. Uh, there's a little bit of room up here up front. You can join us. Glad that you're here, hoping and praying that you're going to have an incredible Thanksgiving uh, this coming Thursday and that the weather is great wherever you might be traveling or if you're staying home, that you have a great time. We've been in this series that we've entitled, Why Do We Do That? And we're asking some probing questions in regards to the actions of Christians. Why are we even asking those? Because we can be weird. We do things that are abnormal. We do things that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we just are born and raised in the church, and then uh, time goes on, we become adults, and then we begin to ask questions like, why do we do that? And no one has an answer. For those things. And so we're probing into those things, not only for kids and teens to understand why do we do certain things, but also so that you, as a growing follower of Jesus Christ, can have answers as to why we do certain things. You can articulate that. There's a story of a church, true story, of an old, old, old Baptist church. And uh, before they had hymnals, they would uh, put the words, uh, to one of their main songs, the doxology, on the right side of the sanctuary, your side, my left. And uh, for years, whenever it became time for the church to sing the doxology, everybody would stand and turn and look to their right. Every time, every single Sunday, it was routine. Over the years, the, the letters began to fade and the wall got painted several times over, and then they received hymnals these uh, books that have the songs written in them. However, they continued the tradition of standing and turning to look at a blank wall. And a visitor came and said, why are we looking at this blank wall? And no one knew the answer. All of the original people had kind of died off. And so no one knew. And then one old man was able to pull the visitor aside and go, because that's where the words used to be. And he said, well, they're not there anymore. Why do we still turn and look at that wall? And the old man goes, I have no idea. It's an idea because we do those kind of things. We do things that we just don't quite know why. That's not altogether bad. But if we're going to continue to grow in faith, to really understand what do we do when we gather here, what we just did, Alex talked about a few weeks ago. When we gather and we sing and we worship, why do we do that? When we get together, what we're going to do on Christmas Eve, we're going to literally put a horse trough on stage, fill it with somewhat warm water, and we're going to shove people underwater. And we're going to baptize them. Why do we do that? We talked about that last week. This morning, we, we continue to go down that road. And we're asking, why do we participate in communion? Why do we show up where there are saltine crackers broken into bits and barely even a shot of Welch's grape juice, not that I know what shots are, you know, of, of Welch's grape juice, and then... We think about someone who was killed and we chug it. And then we're dismissed. 
Like, if you just walk in, maybe this is you. Like, I'm literally describing you. You're like a bunch of weirdos in this room. But if you've been around it all your life, you just do it because that's what we've always done. But I will suggest to you what we do here on Sunday when we partake of the Lord's table is one of the most important things that we could ever do. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit. Are we going to answer every question? Are we going to give uh, all the different sides of looking at it? Absolutely not. But we are going to give some answers as to why. I've been in a lot of churches, and a lot of you have as well. And, and I've taken communion in every way, shape, or size. Uh, and almost every time that I take communion, there's almost always a table involved. Are you with me? Sometimes the table is plain Jane. Sometimes it's super uh, lucrative. Just uh, They've spent a ton of money on it. Sometimes it's, it's designed and dressed up. And other times it's kind of rustic. But there's almost always a table involved. And you might have wondered in the past, what's the significance, other than holding the elements, <laughs> what is the significance of communion sitting on a table? And there is a significance to it. If you think back to the first uh, time that communion was taken, it took place at a normal everyday dinner table. It's a place where we often will share a meal. It's a place where we'll be authentic with one another. We'll let our guard down a little. We'll, we'll laugh together. Maybe we cry together. It's a place of community. And that is symbolic because first and foremost, Jesus wants that with us. He wants that community. He wants that relationship. He doesn't want us to just go through religious uh, exercises. He's not interested in that. What he is interested in is what we do on a regular basis. For most of us is we sit and break bread with one another. We socialize. We build our relationship. One could suggest that the table is not necessary for communion. And I would agree with that. But the symbolicness of it is incredibly powerful for you and I. So let's take a closer look. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to spend a good amount in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have your Bibles, you can turn them on your phone. There's also several Bibles in chairs in front of you. You should be able to find one. But if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open those to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So why do we do it? Why do we do communion? Why, why do, like for us, we do it the first Sunday of every month. Uh, for other churches, they'll do it every time they gather. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no rules. It's just how we kind of find our rhythm. But why? Why do we do that? Well, to begin with, and this is important, we remember. We remember. The Lord's table, first and foremost, is a place for us to remember Jesus. When Jesus sat around the table with his disciples, he gave them the bread and the cup, and twice he told them, do this in remembrance of me. Sometimes the Bible makes it abundantly clear what we do and why we do it. This is one of those. Do this, and as you do it, remember me. So short and simple, we take communion, we think of Jesus. And so what do we remember? If we're just going to remember Jesus, do we remember the time when he turned, uh, when he made more wine? Do we remember when he walked on the water? Do we remember when he healed the blind man? What are we supposed to remember? Three things. Number one, we remember his sufferings. 
This is typically uh, relegated to Good Friday around the Easter season. But really, we should be doing it on a regular basis. We ought to remember his sufferings. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23 and 24, it says this. This is Paul speaking. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember his sufferings. We should especially remember not just his mental, emotional, spiritual sufferings, but we ought to remember his physical sufferings of the body. We should also remember the agony of his prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane. We should remember his unlawful arrest in the middle of the night. We should remember his unfair trial and the false accusations hauled against him on a regular basis. We should remember one of his best friends, Judas and his betrayal, Peter's denial, and his disciples abandoning him at his greatest hour of need. Imagine if you would, in your greatest need, and you are all alone. Everyone who said, we'll be there for you, we love you, you can count on us, no one is there. We should remember the brutal treatment that he received at the hands of the soldiers. We should remember his mocking, being blindfolded, the spitting, the beating with fists, the slap in the face, the crown of thorns crushed onto his skull. We should remember the whipping and the scourging by the Roman guards. We should remember him having to carry his cross through dirty streets while being mocked. We should remember the nailing of his hands and his feet. All of this wrapped up in a dinner table discussion when Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. And he breaks the bread. So why do we do what we do? We remember. We remember that pain. We remember that turmoil. We remember that anguish. It's why we're instructed to approach the Lord's table carefully and with reverence so that we do remember. We also remember, point number two, we remember his death on the cross. Same chapter in 1 Corinthians, verse 25 now. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Notice there's a time of separation. He breaks bread and they have supper. And at the conclusion of supper, he takes the bread. He sets it down. And then he picks up the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And we read throughout the scriptures in various places that the cup is a reminder of Jesus' death. It's a symbol, if you would, of the blood poured out in death on the cross. Again, very quickly throughout the year, unless it's Easter, we tend to move very quickly through this. 
Very, very few times in our week do we focus on the, the turmoil and the pain at which our Lord and Savior Jesus endured on the cross. We think of his forgiveness, we think of his hope, we think of his love, we think of his peace, we think of his patience, but we do not think about the man destroyed. But you see, the pouring out of blood almost always in Scripture is symbolic and referencing to a horrific killing, either to an individual or to an animal. And so the cup is a reminder not only that Jesus died, we can remember that, but that he was killed. And there's a big difference. I don't know if you, if you know someone in your world who's been killed. I do. I have plenty of people in my life who have passed away. There is a difference between someone being killed and someone dying. And Jesus did not die of an old age. He didn't die uh, uh, of cancer. He, he didn't die of an accident. He was executed for a crime he didn't commit. In the worst way known to humanity. He was killed in one of the most brutal and painful methods ever known in the first century or even now. He experienced nerve damage from the nails in his hands. Excruciating pain. He had the pain of hunger and thirst and exhaustion. And not just suffocated, but slowly suffocated. Even to the point where he was not even recognizable as a human being. That's what we hurry past to get to hope, to get to my relationship with Jesus, to get to my quiet time. That's what we hurry past. And worse yet, in his final moments on this earth, he died a horrible death all by himself. Something that not a single human sense has experienced. I've sat with quite a few people who have taken their last breaths. And here's what I know. Because Jesus endured being completely alone in death. Not a single person on the face of the earth will endure that same kind of hardship. Whether they know Jesus or not, they will not die alone. But on that day, the Father turned his face away, as we just sang. And I don't know about you, but I can't picture that. Why? Why can't I picture that? Because I can't picture parenting alone. I can't picture doing my finances alone. I can't picture navigating this world and everything that it throws at us. I can't even picture those things alone, let alone enduring a horrific death. But that's in part what we remember when we go grab this little bit of juice and this little bit of cracker.
So why do we take communion? To remember. To remember his suffering and his death, but we also remember why he died. We also remember why he even did that. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This, he doesn't say this is just blood poured out. He says this is my blood that's been poured out for the forgiveness of sin. He takes full ownership of this sacrifice. We should remember why Jesus suffered and died. He did it for us. He did it for you. He, he did it for the people in your home right now, many of whom may not even be watching. He did it for them. He did it for your coworkers and your neighbors, your politicians, your friends and your enemies. He did it for us. He did it for our sin. He did it to make us right, to reconcile us to the Father in a way that only Jesus could do. Only one could accomplish it. And he did it. Jesus didn't go unwillingly to the cross. He was killed to be sure. But he gave his life up to be killed. He didn't just die a martyr's death. He went to the cross with a purpose. With an accomplishment in mind. And in part, you were on his mind. Now, I don't know about you, but as I review my life, I'm certainly not worthy of being on Jesus' mind, much less part of his purpose. But you were. Sit on that. You matter. Every one of you. You matter in ways that you're not even aware of. And can that kind of love compare to the wow of this world? No. But that kind of love will supersede the wow of this world. And this is why we pause before taking communion, to examine our lives and to confess our sin before God. We remember why Jesus suffered and died so that we might be forgiven of sin. Colossians in the first chapter, verses 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. He rescued us in his death and he brought us into the kingdom in his resurrection in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Just redemption would be good enough. We have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. And it's not just the sins you've done or the sins you do right now. It's the sins you're going to do. That's remarkable that we have a God who knows we're still going to screw up. <laughs> that when we make a promise, God, I'll never do this again if you'll just forgive me. He goes, yeah, I know you're going to. Forgiveness anyway. 
That's amazing. Name another friend that you can forgive if you know what's coming a year from now. You know they're going to assault you. You know they're going to belittle you. You know they're going to do something malicious in their words to you. And yet, you forgive them now for what's coming. That's not normal. That's weird. That makes no sense in the world that we live in. But communion is much more than just remembering. It's also a place that we celebrate. It has to be. It's a place that we celebrate grace and forgiveness. It's a sweet place to literally just stand before God or sit before God and thank him for the forgiveness of sin. Remember verse 25. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Why is that important? Why is that phrase so important? And what does that cause us to do when we take communion? The why is because if communion were only about remembering Jesus' suffering and his death and the torment that he endured, well, that would make going to dinner with Jesus a pretty depressing dinner. And if you do it every Sunday, that would get really depressing. But it's so much more than that. There's certainly a solemn side to communion. And we should rest in that. But communion should also be a time of celebration. It should be a time of good news. We were separated from God because of our sin, but Jesus died so that we might be forgiven forever. Amen? That's what happened. Alex talks about this in worship. It, that should cause us to like, that is the best news ever. You don't have to endure hardship of being separated from the Father for eternity in hell because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's the best news ever. Yeah, thank you. And yet, we treat it as an afterthought. An assumption, a right, old news. And so communion is a time to thank God for the forgiveness of sin. It's a time to dwell on your thankfulness. It's also a time to dwell on your unworthiness. You see, the old covenant required the sacrifice of animals as prescribed by the law. Just a brutal, nasty, filthy, messy act that got transferred to Jesus with all those same descriptors. But God made a new covenant with us in Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice was the final sacrifice for our sins. For whoever puts their faith and trust in him, you are forgiven. That's an amazing contractual agreement. And so when we thank God the Father for his great love in sending Jesus Christ, we thank God the Son for laying down his life. 
And we thank the Holy Spirit for, for coming upon us and washing us clean and making us new. We thank God and we celebrate the forgiveness of sin. And as wonderful as that is, it gets even better than that because communion is also a place to participate in a shared experience. This is one we don't often think about, but it is so critical to us taking the next step in, in a maturity of, of really wrapping our minds and hearts around communion. It's a time to participate in a shared experience. Now, the Christian fellowship we've talked about in the past several years uh, quite frequently, we have the vertical and we have the horizontal relationship. And any kind of authentic, true, healthy Christian faith always has both. First, we share in a fellowship with Christ. This is the vertical dimension. We share in fellowship, in relationship with the risen Christ Jesus. Now, we might nod at that, especially for those who have, those who have grown up in the church. We go, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But if I were to say, hold on, you share in relationship with the Queen of England today. And today you get to go have lunch with her. Well, that might make you sit up in your seat a little bit. Well, for what does that mean? What does it mean that we share in fellowship with the risen Christ? Well, there's a reason why we're instructed to eat the bread and drink the cup. You ever thought about that? That we've got that, that's a symbol, but why do we drink it? Why are we supposed to partake in that? Because if the Lord's Supper was just something for us to remember, then certainly we could just set up a really nice display and then take a cracker and break it and we go, mmm, I remember. And then we take cup and we pour it out and we go, mmm, I remember the blood that's been poured out. We could remember that way, right? And yet, Jesus doesn't say that. He says the way you remember is as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because in partaking of the Lord's Supper, we share in a fellowship with Christ. And just as food nourishes us, so does the bread and the wine nourish us spiritually. Why is that important? Because you can't do it alone. You can't do anything alone. You certainly can't do faith alone. You can't bring faith into your marriage. You can't bring, bring faith into your parenting. You can't bring faith into your friendships. You can't do any of that alone. You have to partake. You need the nourishment, the spiritual undergirding of Jesus to do that. And so when we take communion, if our hearts and our minds are right, and we're focused on the right things, we get the spiritual nourishment in our remembrance to go and do at the end of Matthew. That's what happens. The Bible says he's the vine and we are the branches. We get our spiritual life from him. And what happens way too frequently in the church is we hold on to a principle of Jesus died for my sins, but we leave it there and we operate independently. And we wonder why life just keeps getting harder. Because we're disconnected. We're a branch by ourselves going, why aren't I producing? We're not connected to the vine. 
But the Bible says in Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, taste and see. Don't just taste it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Not taste him physically, but rather come and experience fellowship with Christ, and then you'll see he is good. Taste and see by bringing Christ into your marriage, and then you're going to see he's good. Uh, taste and, and bring Christ into your parenting, whoa, then you're going to see that he is good. Taste by bringing him into your career choices and your, your job that you, that you ch chase after and select and accept. And then you're going to see that God is good. Taste and then see. But that means not leaving God on a shelf. That means not leaving him at the communion table. It means bringing him into every aspect of your life. And then you will taste and see that the Lord is good. Does that mean life's just going to be hunky-dory and that it's just going to be smooth sailing from here on out? Absolutely not. But the peace of the Lord will be with you. The hope of the Lord will be with you in the midst of those storms. The Bible teaches that the memorial presence of Christ is in the Lord's Supper. That Christ is with us in a very special way when we choose to partake. Much like baptism, the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's something powerful in our obedience of baptism. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. There's something powerful there. But is it magical? No. The Welch's grape juice stays the Welch's grape juice. The crackers or the bread remain crackers and bread. There's nothing magical or mystical that happens in and of themselves. There's no supernatural change that happens. They're merely symbols of Christ's suffering and his death and the hope that comes because of it. So that's the vertical dimension of Christ's fellowship with us that takes place in communion. But we also share in fellowship with one another. And we often don't think about this one. What a ridiculous gift it is that as we uh, share in, in the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, that we get to share in a shared experience together in this room. Alex talked about this the other day when he goes to a Broncos game and you've got 65,000 people yelling and screaming and acting ridiculous. Well, there's power in numbers because let's say the entire stadium was silent, but Alex was acting that way. That would probably last like a second or two and then Alex would kind of look around and then sit down because he looks like an idiot. But when you get 65,000 idiots... You're in. You'll paint your chest. You'll paint your head. You'll wear gorilla masks and beads. And you'll just act crazy why there's power in numbers. There's hope in numbers. There's protection in numbers. There's energy in numbers. And notice that we don't eat and drink the cup alone. We eat it here. We eat it together. We don't say, hey, here's a to-go box. Sometime today, take communion. We do it together. We share in the Lord's Supper together because the bread is not only symbolic of Christ's suffering, 
but it's also of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. Because there is one loaf, how many? Let's try this again. How many loaves are there? There's one loaf. Some of you, raise your hand if you really like bread. Come on, be honest. Wow, look at all that, you glutens. Yeah, people love their bread. How many of you like garlic bread? Raise your hand. Yeah, even more. Love me some garlic bread. It's a bummer when you go to someone's house and they pull out garlic bread and you're like, I could eat all of that. Where's the one, where's the bread for everybody else? There's only one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we partake in one loaf. There's only one Jesus. There's only one who died on the cross for your sin. There's only one that gives you the path to God for eternity. There is only one loaf. Are you with me? Is this making sense? And so as believers in Christ, we partake in one loaf together. We're reminded that Christ lives with each of us through the Holy Spirit. And so we have fellowship together. We're reminded that we're brothers and sisters. Why is that important? Well, because if we go down the street and we grab lunch and we start talking politics or we start talking cultural issues or we start talking sports or favorite TV shows, if we start talking about any other thing, we will have disagreements. We will have tension. And we may walk away from one another and go, if you vote that way, we can't be friends anymore. If you hold that conviction, we're done. And so communion reminds us there's one loaf. I have the same comforting Holy Spirit that you do. I believe in the same Lord Jesus who is crucified and died and rose again that you do. I've staked my entire life on the truth of Jesus Christ and for most of you, you have as well. And so communion, like worship, is one of those opportunities we have to come and put our differences aside and share in this horizontal relationship that bridges divides. And that's good news. Because there's nowhere else in this world you can find that. Nowhere. And so communion isn't just a, a command given, it's a gift given. It's a gift because otherwise you'd be looking your whole life for where can I find that? And, and if that's you this morning, you found it. You found it right here. 
And so true Christian fellowship always has the vertical, this relationship that we get to share in a relationship with Jesus. But it also is the shared experience with one another. And finally, we look forward. Oh, do we look forward. Some days more than others, right? Man, when kids are hard, when finances are hard, when addiction recovery is hard, when job search is hard, when anything you watch on television is hard, sometimes we look forward more than others. When Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples, he told them, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well, that's what we're looking forward to. That's what we set our eyes on. That's what we're excited to see happen before our eyes. You see, Jesus proclaimed the coming of God. And in one sense, the kingdom has arrived, but not fully yet. It arrived over 2,000 years ago, but not fully yet. Because that was just the beginning. And God's kingdom continues to advance every minute of every day. He's not done yet. He is still in the saving business. He's still in taking a life that is absolutely broken and has absolutely no hope. And he's still in the business of making that life beautiful. He's still in the business of healing marriages. He's still in the business of of healing anxiety and depression and hunger. But the kingdom will not come until its fullness, until Christ returns and makes all things right. And so in part, when we approach the table, our hearts say, come Lord Jesus, come. And not my time, but yours. And so the Lord's Supper has a forward thrust to it. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, our final verse, verse 26, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So unless you see that white horse riding through the clouds, unless you hear the triumph of trumpets, uh, maybe Alex can join that. Alex plays the trumpet. Uh, Unless you see the the skies parting and, and the millions of angels coming with our Lord Jesus, you keep remembering. You take it and you take it and you take it. You take the bread, you take the cup at all times. And so we, we look at the Lord's Supper not only because it looks backward into history so that we can remember, and the cross, but it also helps us look forward to his return. We remember Jesus and all that he's done for us and all that he has in store for us. That's what we remember. So there you go. There's our answer of why do, in part, at least in part, why do we take communion? Why do we do this? And I hope you have more answers than maybe when we started. So let's do this.
1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave thanks knowing what's coming. Let that be a lesson to us. Sometimes we can see the forecast. We can see the storms that are coming. Jesus did, and he gave thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Those disciples must have been bewildered. <laughs> they might have been scared. They might have been confused. We know what happened. For you. Because God's crazy about you. He loves you so, so much. He celebrates your celebrations and he cries with you in pain. He loves you. He's crazy about you. And if today were that fateful day, he would do it all over again. Even knowing what's coming, he would give thanks because you're worth it. And there's no place, there's no event, there's no act that we get to participate in that draws us closer to those truths than the Lord's table. There is no sin too far. There is no addiction too strong. There is no filth so thick that you cannot come and sit at the table. In fact, the thicker, the worst, the longer, the deeper is exactly why. That's the whole point. And sometimes we can think of our sin as the worst of the worst. It's not. There's no such thing as the worst of the worst. And not only does Jesus say that, but it gets better. He says, you can come sit right with me. Some of you remember what it's like. Yeah, amen. Some of you remember what it's like to sit at the kids' table at Thanksgiving. Some of you remember to still sit at the kids' table when you're not a kid because there's not enough seats at the adult table. You're like, dude, I'm, not, I'm sitting with four-year-olds and I'm 19. Sorry, we're out of chairs. Awesome. 
babysit them while we eat. And Jesus doesn't do that. He says, oh, no, not enough chairs? You can have mine. You can sit in my seat because you are worthy of it. And so on a week where we are going to celebrate Thanksgiving, let us come to the table this morning with a Thanksgiving heart. Maybe a new mindset, maybe a new twist, maybe a new focus this morning. A little bit healthier, a little bit more zeroed in. Maybe a little less fast to hurry up and take the elements and then to celebrate in worship. Let's pray together. God, we cannot thank you enough for the gift. This undeserving gift of your table, this undeserving gift of, of celebrating you, this undeserving gift of your love and your grace and your forgiveness, that's not a one-time act, it's ongoing. And also this, this incredible gift to approach your table in a new way. You know what our morning was like. You know what last night was like. You know what this last week was like. And yet, you say, come, this table is for you. Thank you that you see the big picture. And thank you that your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy and your patience knows no end. And also thank you for the gift of a shared experience a unifying experience that keeps our heart aligned with yours. So walk and sit with us now as we do this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we get ready to, to take communion, if you could uh, join us in, in coming down on the, the side aisles and then coming back the middle aisle. And then I just want to encourage you to sit with it. Whatever this morning came to the forefront of your mind, just sit with it. And then when you're ready, partake. And know what you do is not just going through the motions. You join with the church for thousands of years, doing this and remembering. And then when you're ready, join us in song. Stand and sing. And let's celebrate the Lord's table.